2: Didn't come out right. Let me try again. This isn't going well. I don't have my glasses. I can't read my notes. What I should do is thank some people. What are the names of some people? The audience actually looks a little scared of me. I mainly want to thank, uh, what are the food people called? Craft services? They always brought salmon for me. And Kit Kats for dessert. I usually have 25 of them. What were the names of the craft services people? (laughs) think there was one named Stacy and Daryl? I might have accidentally mauled him and sent him to the hospital because the yellow fruit was touching the red fruit on the fruit plate. I hate that. <laughs> I'm getting the wrap-it-up signal. Don't movies have directors? Which person was the director on this one? And there were definitely some actors. I mean, they have to have names, right? But the only people who meant anything to me were the people who gave me food. Everything else went by in a blur. Why don't I face that about myself? I'm a bear. I have a different hierarchy of needs. Oh, God, now I'm getting a signal that I should introduce some kind of a radio show. Well, here goes. And now, the guy who tastes like Kit Kats, really old, stale Kit Kats, Colin McEnroe.
3: We're live from the study in New Haven, Connecticut. We're here in sort of our second home, uh, here in New Haven, Connecticut. It's the study at Yale, the wonderful hotel here on Chapel Street. If you're hearing this broadcast and, um, you know, you're nearby, come on down. We've got a still a few, few empty seats, but not many here in the lobby. And this is our annual show about the Oscars. Uh, we do the nose on, uh, the Friday before the Oscars every year the same way. One of our great traditions is having, uh, Vivian Nabetta, who I think has done it every single time for us from the Stowe Center now, also winner of this year's Best Shoes Award. Uh, on Tom Green Tom Green's very upset he thought he had really good shoes today and then he just walked in and, and I see. was the favorite coming in and yeah, so uh, Vivian Nevada here's with us uh, Tom Green is a reporter for the New Haven Independent uh, and uh, hosts a film show on WNHH here in New Haven called Deep Focus that's what it's called that's great. Yeah. and then uh, the guy who's really in the business here Arnold Gorlick is the owner of Madison Art Cinemas in Madison, Connecticut uh, he's the guy who really has to live and breathe this stuff uh, so that's who's here we're going to have a conversation uh, if we have some time, oh, maybe we can get the audience I- involved as well. Um, but maybe maybe the way to begin, and I'll start with you, Arnold. I, I Why do we do this every year? I mean, in some ways, the Oscars uh, are invariably a source of frustration. We spend a lot of time talking about errors they made, either in making nominations or who ultimately wins them, uh, the movies that we often care very passionately about are not involved at all. So what's the? Does do the Academy Awards have any purpose? I suppose as a theater owner for you, they have a purpose in sort of focusing people's attention on certain things. I think fundamentally you
4: have to look at the Oscars as a marketing tool mm. and not have higher expectations that it's anything but that to promote itself, to promote as many films, I try to say movies now, there's no more film, yeah. uh, as many movies as possible. We could also look at the absurdity of things even in the Golden Globes, when the Martian won for best
3: comedy. <laughs>
4: this is clearly a move to market. It has nothing
3: to do with merit or categorizing things correctly. Now, Vivian, you're somebody who loves movies. What do you get out of the Oscars? Anything, except irritation?
0: rotation? Uh, well, I think, I think mean, I probably said it before on other shows, it's really a chance for uh, the, the Academy to pat itself on the back and kind of feel very self-important. So part of what you do, is you kind of hate watch a little bit um, and I know I'm not the only one. I see a couple of people um, mm-hmm. nodding. I, I know this year's a little more contentious as, as far as watching or not watching but um, and, and I'm not going to lie, I do like to see pretty dresses. Don't judge <laughs> me please.
3: Um, and so how about, for you, how about for you Tom Breen? Is this a, very, a totally discredited spectacle at this point or does it have some intrinsic worth?
1: So I, I don't think it's just hate watching that we can look forward to when it comes to the Oscars. I think this is an annual checkup on how the movie industry is doing in this country and internationally. You're right, it is a marketing ploy and it is you know meant to draw a lot of attention to a very small set of movies, but also this Oscars so white hashtag that everyone in the country has been talking about for the past two months is because of the Oscars. It's because of shows like this that chat about the Oscars and their relative cultural importance. So it is a chance for us as people who watch movies and think about movies to you know diagnose the state of the movie industry as we see it and and maybe hate watch a little bit.
3: So uh, first of all, obviously Oscar So White in some ways has been beaten to death over the last two months and there's a case to be made that it's all talked out. On the other hand, I feel as though, it's so egregious, it's so bad that we can't let them off the hook yet for this. I mean, we we still have to talk about this. We still have to talk about this gigantic error. And, and so Arnold, this is something I mean, in some ways you look at this and you think, well, it's the result of a balloting, it's not something that anybody can control, but it does seem to be the result of some kind of strange set of attitudes embedded in the the film business. You can argue that, well, maybe the, the biggest problem is not who gets nominated or who gets awards, but what films get made, who gets cast in what films. But, but there's, there's a fundamental, I mean, we, you and I were just saying this before we went on the air today. For me, I mean, the movie that affected me the most this year, that I got the most pleasure out of, that I thought was just a fabulous piece of filmmaking, was Creed. I'm not in any doubt about whether a mistake was made here. Michael B. Jordan should be up as best actor. That movie should be up uh, as best film. And Ryan Coogler should be up as right. best director. Well, it's interesting
4: because by honoring only... Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> it, it really highlights in bold relief what a, an egregious era this is. Sylvester Stallone is a talented man. He created a franchise that's essentially one note. Mm. He's not one of the great actors. It's not one of the great performances. And by elevating him to the level of, of a nomination and omitting Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan just highlights in bold relief. And it has to go to the Basic I think that part of it is subliminal tendency in the Hollywood movie business that movies about black people, African Americans, are considered what old records used to be considered race records. Old mm. jazz, jazz records were mm. considered race records to a limited crowd. Mm. I could talk later about comparing two movies, Blind Side and Precious. One by a white director mm. uh, that went on to great Hollywood success, and one by an African American director, Lee Daniels, in Precious, which, although fiction, was a far more authentic and believable rendering of the
3: uh, entrapment of urban poor. And I, let me ask you something, Vivian, because I was sitting there watching Creed mm-hmm. and...
0: Which was awesome, by the way. Yeah, okay. and
3: one of the things that I was thinking, and which, which has absolutely no value whatsoever coming from a 61-year-old white guy, I was thinking, <laughs> watching the scenes between Michael B. Jordan and Tessa Thompson, I was thinking, I feel like I'm watching two young African-American adults talk and interact in a way that if I were a young African-American adult, I'd think, oh, I recognize that. I recognize the way that they're talking and interacting. It, 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 field, it felt for me very natural uh, and natural looking. But then, what do I know about that?
0: Well, I mean, I guess, I guess maybe part of to kind of dovetail what people have been talking about um, in terms of movies. I think that because we there's just Creed, which I I loved, um, and I do I do think that they had a really beautiful relationship. I think it could have been explored more, and I get it. That's not necessarily the point of the movie, um, but. I also think that it's a nice reminder that you can just be people in a relationship and that um, I think it reminds people that there is a need and that there's, that there's a want for broader stories to be told. And for the fact that I think that's Creed is the only movie we're talking about which only was nominated for Sylvester Stallone also says a lot. Mm. Um, so I, I think it... I think it shows that there's a lot that we still have to do, but I think it also, what I liked about it is that it, it, felt, it, felt, free, it felt like a pretty mm-hmm. relationship. I hate to use that word pretty because what does it mean? It's kind of like nice, but um, you didn't look at it and didn't feel like you couldn't associate with it. Yeah. Yeah. What were you I, I
1: think the, the naturalness of the relationship between Tessa Thompson and Michael B. Jordan and Creed is really testament to the, the care and subtlety that director Ryan Coogler brings to his depictions of race. I mean, I, th- I think that Fruitvale Station, his first picture, which is about Oscar Grant III, the young man who was shot and killed on the platform of a San Francisco BART you know, station, mm. uh, deals with the the conflict, the normalness of living your life as a black man in America, and then the explosion of violence that comes out of, I mean, you have all of these little minor inconveniences, annoyances, prejudices, and then all of a sudden you find yourself face first on the platform and you're shot. And I think that what Creed does, you're right, it shows, you know, here's a normal character, here's a character that anyone can relate to. He's inheriting, you know, the mantle from Sylvester Stallone, he's passing on this franchise to him. But also the moments where the kind of race explodes in into the picture for me in a really positive way is that scene in, in North Philadelphia when he's running through the streets and the kids behind him are racing in these dirt bikes mm-hmm. and ATVs and these are kids who are hungry for you know a role model. They see Apollo Creed, you know this fallen person as their hero and they're, they're looking for someone to replace him. And here in Michael B. Jordan they find someone who they can really look up to and who understands them. And I found that very racially specific and that it's talking about the response of a minority neighborhood but also just beautiful.
3: It, it is the only positive de- depiction of urban ATVs you will ever see, because in real real life they're real a pain, a pain in the yeah. neck. If you're ever driving around a city and they're anywhere near you, you spend the entire time trying not to kill them by mistake. So, um, so that that artistically was an accomplishment to make yeah. that almost balletic in in you know in, in what they did.
1: Can if if I may throw in one more thing about art. So often. Oscars so white and our conversation about movies that have been, you know, conspicuously overlooked by the Oscars. Creed is at the top of the list, and then a close second second is straight out of Compton. I mean the mm, Washington right. Post. Uh, did a number of kind of pseudo analyses of the makeup of the academy, and they found it was like ninety percent white, ninety percent male, ninety percent over sixty, ninety percent you know everything that this so no kind of moving away from. Mm-hmm. But and so in, you know one of the people in the academy dismisses Straight Out of Compton because it was quote unquote too loud, right? Mm-hmm. If you're not going to see Straight Out of Compton because the volume of the noise, then you're not probably in the you know <laughs> business to evaluate music biopics, but. One movie that has not been talked about in this kind of negative space of Overlooked is Chirac. I mm-hmm. think Chirac was one of the best movies of the year. This is it's Spike, Spike Lee's movie. Spike Lee's movie, an adaptation of an ancient Greek satire about you know sex withheld until the violence stops. And it got a very mixed response from critics and audiences, everyone else. But I think that should be in the conversation for you know with Creed and Straight Outta Compton as movies by people of color, about people of color that were horribly overlooked. Well,
3: we're having our typical Oscar show. We're talking about movies that haven't been nominated uh, for the first 10 <laughs> minutes, except for the ones that have. So uh, we probably should actually talk a little bit about the nominations. I, I, can we talk about Best Picture? I'll just, I'll lay my cards on the table. Given what's nominated, after I saw The Revenant, for me this year, the, 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 the criteria, the criterion is, is what's being done with the medium of movies here? In other words, is this a, an especially good movie as opposed to something that would be easily transferable to another medium? Are they doing something that only movies can do? And I'm actually pretty comfortable with The Revenant winning on that basis. I feel it does enough with the medium. It, it excites me enough in that way that that, you know, if something here has to win, that's fine with me. But so, Arnold, I know Brooklyn for you is the...
4: Well, it's not, uh, I don't wish for it to win. It was yeah. my personal favorite. I'm mm. from Brooklyn. Part of my youth was overseen by uh, Irish people, mm-hmm. and I have a wife who had to choose between two homes and chose to be with me, the mm. three themes in Brooklyn. <laughs> and I lived around the corner from where Ebbetsfield used to be, one of the subtexts in, yeah. in in Brooklyn. So this is my personal favorite. I don't think it deserves to be Best Picture of the Year. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I would hope to win would be Spotlight, but... The Revenant does something that's different than all the other movies. It fully exploits the, the possibilities of movies, of film, in a way that you can only see this in a movie theater to appreciate it. Anybody sees this at home is not going right. to see The
3: Revenant. Yeah, I mean, every year there's a few movies like that. But and don't that, bother. If it you're means a like great <laughs> deal to me
4: that this has to be a cinematic experience, experience in a movie theater.
3: Right. Uh, I would imagine that would mean something to you. Um, So what about you, uh, Vivian? How does the category shape up for you?
0: Um, I think I agree with you. It's probably going to be The Revenant. Um, I think we already know, even if you haven't seen it, I'm just going to spoil it for you now. I'm going to bet Leonardo DiCaprio is going to win. Um, I think the Oscar gods have just kind of which is probably another topic of discussion. Um, you know, it, there there always seems to line up like this person, it is their time to receive the anointed Oscar. And as we all know, there's been a lot of talk like, oh, he's never gotten it, he's never gotten it. And there's a long list of people who never gotten it and should. But um, so, spoiler alert Leonardo DiCaprio is going to win. Um, uh,
3: Tom, just how's the category look yeah, for well, you? Well, actually,
0: I,
1: I want to say that I think it's an incredibly strong category when it comes to. Best Picture, I mean, there is not a a dud in the bunch. I think any of these movies is is worthy of that type of recognition, but Dwelling on The Revenant for a second more, you had a, an episode about the art of the critic yesterday, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's nice to follow A.O. Scott. it's a bit yeah, intimidating, uh, but uh, you, you played this clip from Birdman, which won yeah. Best Picture last year, in which Michael Keaton, who plays a long-suffering actor, is railing against a critic, right? He says, you don't take risks, I'm an artist, I take risks, it's risky being me. Uh, and I think that what we're seeing in The Revenant is a director taking a big risk subjecting an audience to 3 hours of grueling punishment and beautiful images and i don't think that it's ultimately a successful movie i i found especially the latter 2 hours i found horrible you know <laughs> pretentious and grueling but it sure it is a movie that cannot be you know it's a work of art that couldn't be realized in any other format Um, I don't know if that's the only thing that we should look to when we celebrate movies.
3: No, it's probably not the only thing we should look to. Although one of the things that people repeat, um, I had this experience, many of you probably had the experience, by about an hour and a half in, I was really cold. I was actually really cold. I wish I'd worn double layers of socks and things like that. So for a movie to be able to do that, to actually make you experience, Sure. that i mean in a maybe... way that the
4: hateful eight didn't <laughs> no. i didn't feel cold during <laughs> right. that i felt cold during the revenant um,
3: yeah. and, and maybe it is just the relentlessness that you're yeah. talking I, about i think we all,
1: i mean i don't want to give away any spoilers but the uh, we have to think about how a movie sticks its landing too and for one mm-hmm. that dwells so much on the futility of these revenge exercises mm-hmm and then maybe letting the character off the hook a bit at the end, it seemed a bit contradictory. It didn't seem to be too confident in the ultimate idea it was trying to convey to the audience and more reveling in the beauty and the bloodshed.
3: I mean, I know that Arnold saw it and I saw it also this morning. There's a piece up on the New Yorker website by Richard Brody talking about basically the, the politics of this and that you know, the Revan is, is kind of the Trump of the movies, you know, right. that it's crude, it's visceral, it's raw, and it's it, it, makes, up, and it makes up its own rules too. Right. I mean, this is ultimately about making up your own rule about how you're gonna deal with something. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so you, did you say Spotlight is what you'd like to see win or think is, think
4: is gonna win? Spotlight, well, I don't think will win because of its understatement, but in many ways, Spotlight to me was a perfect movie. It wasn't a wasted frame. There wasn't an extra syllable. They even managed to make the tedium of the work they did engaging. Certainly it's the best movie on journalism since All the President's Men. Mm. And it's understatement and it's gradual power as you see the protagonist even not fully be able to assimilate what was happening as it was happening, ultimately bringing the number of abusing priests to 249. And Cardinal Bernard. was role in it mm-hmm. and how he was handled by the church. This was, to me, a brave movie, understated. It's also non-individual, uh, non-individualistic. individual It's an ensemble piece. Nobody stands out. It's the group. It's the idea of what, really, a collaborative effort movie-making it is. For its understatement, I don't think it'll win, but I think it was a courageous movie.
3: So I'm, I'm going to introduce one of my theories of culture. I only have, like, three or four of them, and I just say them <laughs> over and over again, hoping that people... I've forgotten the last time I said them, but, so one of my theories of culture is that we celebrate a thing when it's dying. Um, and this, you can, you can kind of connect this to The Revenant right. in the yeah. sense that, you know, it's a movie about a kind of frontier that, that's gone uh, about a kind of Native American existence that's completely driven driven out. But more than that, it sort of connects to, you know, the, the, um, the, the Wild West shows, the Wild Bill Hickok type of Wild West shows became very popular in America at precisely the time the frontier that it was celebrating, that they were celebrating, celebrating was settling down and going out of business, and you see this over and over again. I mean, in the in the 80s and 90s, there were all these shows like Twin Peaks and Northern Exposure and Picket Fences, and they were all about the kind of idiosyncratic cr- cr- small American town that was being extinguished by Boston markets and CVSs and this kind of DNA code that repeats itself in American life now. And one of the things that I think, Vivian, about Spotlight is I'm watching the celebration of something. that that I'm, I'm witnessing the death of right now, which is newspaper journalism, investigative journalism, the deployment of Lark. I mean, the scene near the beginning where uh, Liev Schreiber arrives as the new editor and asks Michael Keaton, well, how is it you do your job? And he says, well, it takes us a couple of months maybe to, to you know, pick something we're going to do, and then we might work on it for a year or two. You know, you just realize, you're listening to a, You might as well be listening to a conversation about the Wild West. I mean, this isn't going to be happening anymore.
0: Right. Well, I want. I, I also wonder, to your point about kind of celebrating things as they're dying. Um, I've, I've, I never thought of it that way, actually, and I, I think you're right because since this movie has come out there has been a lot of discussion about journalism and what does that mean anymore because how many places can you go for um, long-form really in-depth writing and you really can't and some of it you know it is kind of like we're at that weird kind of cultural turning point because you you think about it when something happens there's breaking news there's so many ways in which you can get it but we don't have any more places that Analyze something after it's done, so we don't have an understanding of where we're going as a culture. So I never really thought of it that way, and I think part of what I think might be an issue for Spotlight is the subject matter. I mean, who? It's it it's a tough it's a tough thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tough group that is involved in that and i think for some people in it and out of all the movies that are in that um i think there are a lot of underdogs but i certainly feel like there were probably a group of people in the general public that would have, were like what movie is this mm. who what is this so but I it is
4: a movie that uh, there's a lot a highly there charged subject that was not salacious and uh not sensational right it was not a sensationalized. exactly it didn't sensationalize the uh,
0: Right, and even with a revenue, yes, it was three hours, and it was very brutal and and pushing, but it wasn't the same thing as sitting through a spotlight on that particular topic. Mm -hmm. I think it feels, and I hate to say it this way, I think it feels maybe more palatable to somebody to go and watch Leonardo DiCaprio have that experience, (laughs) as opposed to, let me go sit through a movie where we talk about children who unfortunately have been molested. It's, it's a 50-50, you know I mean? palatability <laughs> 50, 50.
3: Although yeah. Tom, one, one feeling that I have though is, okay, we use movies to dream too, to dream and to see things that we hope, the way we wish things were, or what the possibilities uh, that, that seem to elude us uh, can be transferred up onto the screen. And, and I feel as though with some of these movies, you know, we, we you can go back to the, um, I think it was the Ron Suskin book where uh, during the Bush administration, somebody who appeared to be Karl Rove said, oh, you're back in the reality-based community. And and we live right now in, in a situation where the, the search for truth is often shunted to one side. Donald Trump gets up and just says something that he kind of thinks is true, that, that Muslims were celebrating at 9-11 across the river in, in Jersey City. He, it doesn't seem to need to be fact-checked. Um, and, and that some of these movies our Spotlight and The Martian, to whatever extent we think The Martian is kind of competence porn mm-hmm. about people who are obviously products of the Enlightenment, who still believe in facts and science. There's a recurring phrase in The Martian, which I can't say on the radio, but we're going to science the blank out of this, that, that one of the dreams that's in some of these movies is there are still competent people working at the Boston Globe or working for NASA, you know, who, who know things and stick to the facts and stick to the science. And maybe that's one of the dreams we're celebrating this I, year. I think
1: that's the appeal and success of Bridge of Spies as well, where yeah. you have an insurance lawyer who is who's kind of brokering the Cold War. He's the, he's this incredibly competent small person causing monumental changes. But going back to your... your I, I appreciate your your, the, your one of your theories on culture, this thing about <laughs> our interest in, in dying uh, institutions. But I think that a movie or any work of art that relies solely upon that type of nostalgia can only go so far. I think Spotlight is really of a moment with this this Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump uh, absolute frustration and lack of trust in elites, in mm-hmm. elites who are corrupt, in elites who have been taking advantage of little people for eons. And in Spotlight, you see a Catholic church and a municipal government hand in hand uh, perpetuating this, this crime against the community. And I think that part of the appeal of Spotlight for me is that that surging up against, against these institutions that otherwise, I mean, Spotlight did such a great job for such a modest movie of having every single scene backdropped by a church. It's almost walled in, this church community of Boston. You can't turn without looking at one of those churches. And to rebel against these big institutions, that's, that's, that's why I had Spotlight at the top of my list as well.
3: All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. We'll come back with more of this terrific panel live from the study in New Haven right after this.
1: of the family.
4: So take this suggestion from me. Oh, let's go out
0: to
2: the movies.
3: They're better than ever before. With romance to thrill you and mystery to chill you. and From the study in New Haven, activate our applause sound effects. I'm, I'm kidding. It's not a sound effect. We actually have human beings here. Lovely, attractive, wonderful Elm City human beings uh, are here We're at the study in New Haven on Chapel Street, a beautiful hotel here in New Haven. We're talking about the Oscars with Arnold Gorlick, he is the owner of Madison Art Cinemas, with Vivian Nebetta, who has never not been with us for uh, for an Oscar episode of The Nose, she's with the Stowe Center now, and Tom Breen, uh, who is a reporter for the New Haven Independent, and perhaps more relevantly, the host of Deep Focus on WNHH down here uh, in New Haven. So we want to spend a little moment or two talking about the documentaries and Tom decided it would be really fun for us if like, we watched this movie called The Look of Silence, um, and uh, which I watched last night and then turned <laughs> over to the Republican debate and thought our country is really in trouble right now. But so maybe just set it up for us, Tom. Tell us about The Look of Silence. Sure,
1: so The Look of Silence is the second movie by Danish filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer about the kind of long-standing consequences of the Indonesian genocide in 1965, which there was a military coup and the military government killed over one million suspected communists, but that meant ethnic Chinese, that meant people who were you know, in opposition parties to the government, that meant any, anyone who happened to be on the wrong side of the aisle or, or looked the wrong way, um, you were killed. And this is, so the look of silence is the perspective on this genocide from the the victim's point of view. So the filmmaker follows around the brother of someone who was killed during the genocide and this brother who is uh, an eye doctor and uh, an eyeglass salesman, he goes around to find these people who, who led the death squads, who participated in this genocide, who are still revered in Indonesian today, and many of them still hold power in this country. So he, this brother of the victim and the filmmaker, they go kind of from door to door to all these people who spend most of their time boasting about how, how many people they could kill or how they rid this country of communists. And he says, listen, when you keep, when you are in power, and you don 't recognize that a whole community of people still live in fear of another genocide breaking out because of the way you boast about this. This is not a sustainable way for people to live um, and I think watching it in juxtaposition with the republican debate is is uh, you know uncannily familiar because when we think about the atrocities in our own American history that we have not come to terms with, I mean slavery being the biggest one, uh, how is it that we can really prosper as a society with everyone involved, in, you know, included in that prosperity when one group still feels under the thumb of you know, the uh, monster of circularity, right? as Richard Brody talked about the academy, white people promoting other white people who like movies by white people.
3: Well, yeah, no, and I gave you an impossible job, which is to just describe this movie, which is kind of an indescribable describable movie. It is uh, a movie that nothing that you could say about it would prepare, I think, people for these incredibly strange conversations. And I was kind of joking. I mean, at the end of it, you do see, as Tom has said, this moment in 1965 where things got really, really out of control, and, and it could be argued... Have never gotten back under control ever since, and, and there is a way in which you think, well, wow, wow! Once the monster's out of the box, you can't really get it back in all that easily. And I'm sort of kidding that when I flipped over over to the Republican debate, I thought, oh, we're in a lot of trouble. But you and I certainly don't think we're in that kind of trouble. But you realize there are a lot of people who are waiting to feel empowered, you know, and and not for nothing. But I mean, David Duke just. Uh, announced himself a a supporter of Donald Trump and said he wants all of his followers, God help us, however many of those there might be. And the American Nazi Party. And you just sort of think, maybe we do see movies like this as a warning anyway about what happens when you don't take something like that seriously
1: and i just just the last thing on look of yeah. silence this is the second movie the first one is called act of killing which is told mm, from the perspective right. of the killers themselves so if you're for a the issue of
4: feature. forgiveness it's such an enigmatic thing was he forgiving he he so wanted this man this brother of Romney who was brutalized and killed uh, after two attempts and among the genocide at the side of the snake river his eagerness to forgive mainly because he wanted to free himself from it but was he forgiving too easily he reminded me more of a quote that I think was attributed to um, Heloise and Abelard. Heloise said to him, uh, I dreamt that someone gave good for evil mm. and the world stood still. Otherwise I couldn't fathom why he could fi- summon up the will to forgive even in the face of no apology.
3: You know. Vivian, every year this happens. There are movies in the documentary category that really do sort of um, ask us profound questions about living, uh, call our attention to situations far away from us across the globe, uh, bring up breathtakingly uh, complex moral questions. And then there's movies about entertainment. Um, And for the most part, those tend to win. Those tend to do do much better. Uh, and, And so this year, we've got Amy Winehouse and we've got Nina Simone. And I'm guessing that the Academy Probably breaks that way as opposed to this incredibly difficult movie we're talking about right now.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think just listening to it, and and I have to admit, I haven't seen it yet because again, I have to admit, sometimes I'm that person that I, I don't mind. I believe in in that art should should push you and that you should watch something and you should you and you should be uncomfortable. Um, but I do I do would, I would be surprised um, if a lot of the members of the academy, whoever they are, we know what they might look like. Um, have seen that, so you, de- you do tend to go to things like, okay, well I know who Amy Winehouse is. Not to say the quality of the work isn't very good, because I saw the Nina Simone documentary, and, uh, and for me, um, particularly in this discussion about you know Oscar so white and and this and and the point culturally where we are um, to to watch the Nina simone documentary one I mean I know who she is because you know I hope all of us here know who she is, um, but to really be able to delve into her life and and find out who she was and um, I actually watched uh, something where the uh, documentary the, the filmmaker. Uh, talked about how open her daughter was to whatever she wanted to do, that she didn't put any kind of limitations on what could be said or what could be not said. And I didn't realize that uh, that I knew she was an activist, I knew she was very vocal, and I took I knew she took a lot of hits for how she how she felt and what she believed and i couldn't help but think well what if she was around today mm-hmm. like what if she was here today and she sang that mississippi and i'm not going to say the end of the song today would she take that same hit and you know there's a lot of kind of uh, and i think that because culture and because this discuss discussion of entertainers and musician they do kind of dug into um, how we're living our lives because I, I of course had to make that comparison when I thought about um, when after I watched the documentary with Beyonce in the formation video actually that's a, one of the things I thought talked about um, I know that's Colin's favorite video he said in but um, how how for me kind of thought okay well if she was to do that today who would she be would she still be successful because she didn't not that she wasn't um, an artist, and not that she didn't, her legacy doesn't live on, but once she spoke out the way she did, it was like, oh, nope, that's it, your career's done. And to a certain degree, we live in a culture where that might not necessarily be the case, so. That's what I thought about.
3: I, I don't know whether... I, I think it has something to do with the moment that we're in here in America, but it's almost impossible to see these movies this year and not refract them through the present moment. I mean, every exactly. all, all Just in the way that you're saying, or, you know, I mean, Cartel Land is one of the other uh, uh, documentaries that's nominated this year. And there's, at the beginning of Cartel Land, you, you basically see the guys that Donald Trump thinks is, are all of the Mexican immigrants, right? right. You, you see those guys and it's just an amazing shot. And then they have a conversation to the camera. One guy talks to camera and he says, look, this is what we have to do. You know, If we lived up where you live and we had the kind of opportunities that you have, we probably wouldn't be doing this right now. You know, We'd be doing something else. We'd be doing whatever it is that you do, but this is what we have to do. And there are like so many things going on just at that moment. One of them is, well, yeah, that's not, that's not what our Mexican immigration problem is about, Donald Trump notwithstanding. But also just, I, you're nodding, I assume you saw this. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah,
1: yeah. I, I did. And I think it's it's important to bring up Sicario in conjunction with Cartel Land, two movies this year, that really dealt uh, very well with the border, With uh, the kind of border as an idea and the very real kind of threatening aspect of the US-Mexican border. I mean, this, is, this subject of the border the kind of ambiguity that surrounds it is stuff that, you know, the filmmaker John Sayles has been making movies about for a long time, where mm-hmm. you kind of, you live in Texas, California, Florida, you're, you're kind of near the kind of outskirts, the fringes of the United States. And what does that do to both your community and also to your your own ego? But with Cartel Land, I mean, it did such a great job, right, of identifying the cycles of, of vigilante justice and what vigilante justice looks like in a country like like Mexico where there actually is rampant corruption in government and where people actually do have to pick up guns and defend themselves, mm. and then what it looks like on the other side of the Arizona border where you have a bunch of people who are you know, watching Fox News, getting riled up, angry at their dad, and arresting people who you know, are, are just working in their, their local restaurants because they see it as an infringement of their rights as mm. Americans. It's, it's a real debunking of what vigilante justice means in a country that doesn't need it anymore. So
3: Arnold, one thing that people down here tell me about you is that if you live here down in the southern part of the state, the Arnold Gorlick will make sure you see certain movies that, for example, Mark Oppenheimer was passing through here a little while ago. He says, yeah, Arnold will say, you've got to come see this movie. You've, it's important that you come to my movie theater and see this movie. So are there movies right now that not necessarily the ones you're playing this very minute, but movies that are part of this conversation that you feel that way about, that you want up on your screen, that you want to make people see because you think it'll change them somehow.
4: Oddly enough, that's really the point of view from which I operate for theater, but I don't feel that strongly about anything. Of course, the look of silence, Mm. but I'm not going to play the look of silence it looked like. Mm. Uh, It's a for-profit theater. I have to be able to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. I always. uh, fantasize of being not-for-profit because I can go more to the edge, but I haven't been rewarded. At this moment, no. But what I do do differently than other theaters is I make curtain appearances before Hmm. movies, when occasionally there's a movie that's so transformative that it's affected me me so much, not to create box office. I just share with them that you must come and sit in a darkened movie theater and have this transforming experience. That's and, and, what gives meaning to what I do.
0: And
3: just to sort of uh, put a little button on that, too, one thing you and I were talking about during the break is, with documentaries, a lot of them are going direct to video these right. days, too. There, there's, you know, your first chance to see them is on Netflix as opposed to...
4: And that's part of the subtext of what's going on with the whiteness of the Oscars. Idris Elba, for example, had not been nominated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Beast of No Nation has not been nominated. And many people trivialize it because it's really coming out on, where well, we watch it on a television screen first, on Netflix and it doesn't have quite the same credibility. I mentioned to you that years ago, Hoop Dreams, which I should thought should have not only been nominated for best documentary, but have won, but instead a very fine documentary, which was done on film about Maya Lin is the one, and there was a huge controversy about it, that something that's done on video was trivialized and the Hollywood industry won't give it the same credence as something that's done to be shown mm-hmm. in movie theaters.
0: Well, technically though, it was, I mean, they've released it enough but i I would agree with you that there still is that there still is that oh you can you know movies are movies because you have to go and pay for the experience whereas um television is something that you can do at your own home but i would argue that and that's another show that television is doing a much better job in terms of it's not perfect either but it's doing a much better job the best writing is
4: now on television it's true
0: and I would, also th- I would also argue that as somebody who doesn't, before we lived in a world that unless you, could, unless you had a, a certain cinema that, sh- that would show documentaries, you'd never see one. So I think with things like Netflix and Amazon Prime, they've given access to a lot of people who would not have seen some of these films. So I think that's kind of the double, maybe a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. Um, but I think it's opened up documentaries to people who probably wouldn't have had the chance.
3: Well, I mean, the look of silence, case in point, right? I mean, that's going to be, a, as you say, it's a tough movie for you to show. Uh, you're not going to get crowds m- m- up where we live at Real Artways, they, they, they show movies like that. But, but by and large, that's also a movie where, yeah, you watch it on a 46-inch television. You're probably not going to lose too much right. uh, uh, of the visual quality. Right,
1: although we shouldn't diminish the kind of cinematic nature of the movie as well. I mean, this isn't just a bunch of talking heads. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a beautiful movie. It is a very well-made movie. Uh, and it, it is one that its form makes content all, all the content stunningly beautiful, stunningly
4: beautiful, right? breathtaking. Um,
1: it's that, that question of of what movies should people go out and see. It's kind of an interesting one. Um, and I think that this is uh, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but I think it's one of the movies that of this list, you know, brought up by the Oscars that everyone should go out and see is Mad Max: Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a particularly important movie, unless if you care about about movies. But I think that the uh, vitality of and the kind of energy that it brings to this art form um, justifies our talking about movies for an hour Am my talking about movies for an hour every week. Um, I, I think that what it does with its, you know, its physical props and its car chases and its acting and its action, I mean, it is just incredible and cannot be realized in, in any other format. So I railed against that argument for the Revenant, but I'm making it for well, uh, Mad Well, we could
3: extend Richard Brody's uh, argument. If the Revenant is the Trump movie, Mad Max: Fury Road is the Hillary Clinton movie, right? It's let women run things and let as women it should be. <laughs> So yeah, so that's that argument there. But it, it also raises the question. You know, I was talking before about that notion of celebrating a thing when it's it's dying. The fear, obviously, is that the Academy Awards are celebrating another thing that's dying, which is the experience of seeing movies in movie theaters. You're doing everything in your power to keep that alive, but it, it lives in peril. All right, the time. and that's
4: the other side of the double-edged sword of watching something on video, and you're not having the collective experience, mm-hmm. which adds a dimension to watching the movie.
3: Yeah, and I. To me, that's so important, you know, with certain movies. One of the movies that I loved this year, that I understood was not gonna be nominated for any Oscars, and, and although I really actually thought Jason Siegel's performance as David Foster oh, Wallace in End yeah. of the Tour was one of the great pieces of acting that I saw this I'm blown years. away it, didn't, yeah. it wasn't
4: nominated for best screenplay.
3: At, at no point during this movie did I think I was watching an actor. I really felt like I was watching right. David Foster Wallace, but or at least something, something that wasn't somebody acting. But at the end of the movie, I thought, Did they make that movie just for me because like it's got all of my issues in it you know and all kinds of things that i'm interested in in it and and so i was in a movie theater and i turned around (laughs) to the people sitting behind me and i said did you like that movie and they said yeah we liked it a lot i said okay that's a relief because i thought i was almost having kind of a truman show moment like Maybe they just made this movie to make me happy.
4: It's one of my ten favorite movies of the year. Nobody mentions it yeah. on their ten best. There's, of
1: course, there's a New Haven tie-in with that movie and that Donald Margulies, who wrote the screenplay, right. uh, is a longtime New Haven-based uh, playwright and professor at Yale and has really been promoting the movie. I know at Arnold Cinema as well. Um, well, he
4: came to the theater and addressed the crowd afterwards for yeah. Q&A. Yeah. That was the only night we did business with it.
1: But there's, <laughs> there's a real joy in going to movies written by people who have an ear for dialogue, whether yeah. they be playwrights or professional writers in some capacity. I mean, I'm thinking of... Uh, the new um, Alan Bennett movie, *The Lady in the Van*, uh, which is you know, by a British playwright. And it's a very modest movie about a pretty egotistical guy. But you know, if people, if you have a sense of good language, it can just be a delight to sit in the theater and spend an hour and a half with a character.
3: We're going to take a quick break here. We'll come back with our final segment live from the study in New Haven. Maybe even let the audience uh, bring up things and ask what would you guys would do that, right? All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Actually, they sat there very inertly when I asked them. <laughs>
2: The following Oscars for technical achievement were awarded at a ceremony earlier this week in the middle of the day in a garbage strewn alleyway with feral cats yowling in the background. Best production of a radio show on the road, Betsy Kaplan, Katie Talarski, Jonathan McPants, and me, Kyone Wolf. Lifetime Achievement Award, Gene Amatruda. Best tweeter, Greg Hill at WNPR Colin. Best performance in the role of Bill Curry, Chevy Chase. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff eating crummy snacks and watching Hot Tub Time Machine 2, go to our website, wnpr.org slash collin. Coming up next week, a chance to catch up on our shows about Vin Baker, Beatrice Fox-Auerbach, the sharing economy, and dioramas. And now, back to Colin.
3: All right, live from New Haven, the study on Chapel Street. This is sort of a second home for us. I think I bet we've done 10 shows from this lobby by now. So we're here on Chapel Street in New Haven. We wish you would had come by, but we do have some wonderful people who are here. We're gonna make it possible for them to participate in this conversation as we go along. With me up here is uh, Arnold Gorlick. He's the owner of Madison Art Cinemas. Uh, Vivian Nebetta from the Stowe Center. Uh, Tom Breen uh, from the New Haven Independent. Uh, we're all here talking about the Oscars. Although we tend to sort of veer away from the Oscars and talk about movies in general and movies that haven't been nominated. Although, maybe before we... And if there are any questions or comments or anything, we'd love to get a few of you on the air. Before we do that, though, we should say something, anyway, about the telecast itself. Um, uh, Usually, I'm at a fundraising party, which I'll mention at the end of the show, and I have to DVR it and watch it later. This year, they're actually trying to do something that I've been wishing that they would do for a long time, which is get rid of all these elaborate thank yous. I mean, everybody who goes up there... I'm always sitting there, if I'm interested at all in the person, thinking, please, say something. Say something about what it's like to be you. Say something about what this means to you. And instead, they're, you know, they really are mentioning everybody who ever shook their hand in their lives. Uh, and <laughs> so this year, they are offering people the chance to have that loaded in and have it come up as a crawl across the screen so they can actually say something. So first of all, Vivian, what are the chances, in your mind, that that'll actually work? And that people- it will not. Okay.
0: It is a very, very valiant effort. Because also, too, think about it, if you actually win. You, am I re- I'm thinking about you know when I win my Oscar in 2018. <laughs> um, I'm not going to necessarily look at the screen. I may not remember. Or I may see a name. You could put my mother on there. I'm like, I don't know who Elizabeth is. So I, I don't think so. I think it's really sweet. But and that's to take you people, off the hook.
3: You don't, have to, you don't have to know anything like that. It'll crawl down underneath you. Some people won't
0: even care. It's like, you yeah. could put it right there. I'll tell you. I mean, they just don't care.
3: Um, all right,
4: so... Um... Well, apropos, my favorite acceptance speech was the shortest. It was by, I think it was Maureen Stapleton, when she won for Best Supporting Actress in Reds. Yeah. And she was so stunned, she just ran up there and said, spit out in the microphone, I want to thank everybody, everybody I ever met. Right,
0: there, <laughs>
3: there actually are. I think Brain Pickings or one of those sites has right now the short. There are four-word acceptance speech uh, that people gave in the past. Things like "thank you very much" and they would go sit down. I don't want that either. I want to hear like what's going on. What you know, say something to me that I'll remember, and I will not remember who your agent is. Don't say that. Are, are there <laughs> are there people out here? Yes. we Yeah. Let's get the microphone over. Yeah. Here you go. Let's talk right into that microphone. Um, Colin,
4: a short anecdote, and I think Vivian kind of alluded to this point I'm going to make. I have a second cousin, my mom's cousin, who uh, when, his, when he was younger was a principal at a film company, and he was a voting member of the Academy. And a couple of different years I asked him about movies he would vote on and what he was going to vote for. And I was surprised to learn there were a lot of the films, even in the best picture category, that he hadn't seen. Mm-hmm. And he was still going to vote for, I guess, based on the ones he had seen. Wow. But kind of surprising. My other comment is that, um, as far as the um, Academy Awards being kind of a marketing tool and maybe not really going to quality, when we're in a culture where you know, the most energy in the campaign is going to somebody like Donald Trump, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that that percolates up and you know, quality isn't what necessarily gets the attention.
3: Well, to your first point, they have no excuse for not seeing them now because they all get screeners, right? I mean, right. this is yeah. a very transportable medium at this point. They have to see everything. There are whole
0: articles, though, about it, about how a lot of them don't see everything, even with the screeners. And I think, what is it, the Hollywood Report? Some, some, a vanity, somebody after the Oscars, they do an interview with an anonymous Academy person who talks about that year's Mm -hmm. race.
3: The other thing, Tom, that we're going to see this year is Chris Rock, obviously being the host. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a group of people who they understand, I think, that they're going to be made fun of and be rated by whoever the host is, but they don't seem to take it very well usually. And I'm wondering what this is going to be like this year.
1: Yeah, you know, Chris, Chris Rock, I. I haven't seen Top 5, but it's one of the movies I've really been looking forward to catching up with. It's kind of his return to the to Limelight a couple years ago, his movie about a, a comedian trying to regain his mojo and his various travails in New York City. But I think everyone who talks about Chris Rock, everyone who knows Chris Rock says that he's the smartest person in the room always. And mm. I'm really looking forward to seeing, and I know he's hosted the Oscars before, and I don't think he made uh, much, much of an impression back in, in 2005, but I think that he's, I mean, a lot of weight is put on the shoulders of whoever hosts the Oscars. They have to be entertaining uh, and interesting and, and you know sharp, but not too sharp for the whole night. And I don't know, I think, I think he's, a, he's someone that I really enjoy watching perform. I mm-hmm. think he's a really entertaining guy uh, and really smart, so I, I think he'll, he'll do well.
3: Well, I mean, in a way, this issue has is sat frozen for two months, right? If you don't nominate anybody, then we can't really talk about it very much, except in the, the very blocked way. It's a little bit like the Supreme Court. You know, if you don't nominate anybody, we can't have that conversation. Um, and, and so, Vivian. Sunday night will be the resumption of that conversation. Right. I mean, they've handed Chris Rock a stick of dynamite.
0: Right. Well, I mean, one, you don't, I think when it comes down to comedians and who you're planning on, on having host anything, let alone the Oscars, I mean, you kind of know what you're getting. You don't bring somebody like Chris Rock and expect him to talk about roses and daisies and smiles and rainbows. Mm. Um, I think part of it, part of including him is to, to. Uh, I mean, he's a smart comedian. He's a great stand-up I'm a fan, but part of it is you know you do have to make fun of these people. I mean, we're, we're you're in multi-million dollar gowns, you know. We're sitting here, you know, cheering for who's the best. And I'm not saying there's that there's anything wrong with that, um, but I think that it brings that experience back down. For that, And I think it's okay to make, I'm sorry, it's okay to make fun of George Clooney or or Matt or Matt Damon. Like, he's not going to lose sleep over it. He'll be fine.
3: They'll get it. All right. We have to stop here. I want to say, first of all, thank you to my wonderful staff who came down here with me today, Betsy Kaplan, uh, Katie Tularski, Josh Nilea, and Jonathan McNichol. Thank you so much for coming out uh, to the study today. Give yourselves a big hand right now and a hand for Vivian Nevada, Arnold Gorlick, and Tom Breen. We'll be back next week with a whole bunch of new shows or perhaps shows you've heard before.
2: You may be homely in your
1: neighborhood But if you think that you can be an actor See Mr. Factor He'd make a monkey look good
2: Within a half an hour You'll look like Tyrone Power Hooray for Holly I'm so excited. I am a bear at the after party for the Oscars. Ah, there's Brian Cranston. I love him. Oh, Kate Winslet. Leo. But why am I the only bear here? Ugh. Oscars so human.